Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we have Bill Berner. He is a television director of photography who came up in the business as a lighting designer. True, true. He has over 40 years of experience and multiple Emmy Awards and nominations. Bill, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here. All right. Can you please give us the full list of the accolades you've received? I have won uh, six daytime Emmys, four as a lighting designer, one as a director of photography, one as a producer, and I've got you know a pile of a bunch of other nominations and uh, also nomination as a director. But again, but I've always told people that, and especially a daytime Emmy, but an Emmy award and two seventy five will get you on the subway. They look great on the mantelpiece, though, right? Yeah, they're not bad. They're not bad. We still have we we have them up on a high shelf. It's true. The best uh, I ever said was there was a uh, producer director on Sesame Street, one of the guys who created the show, who was sort of a mentor at one time, a guy named John Stone, who had won because of being a creator of Sesame Street uh, and a writer and producer and director. Uh, had so many, he just had them, you know, sort of piled up under a glass coffee table, just sort of cheek by jowl. Uh, and that's probably the more appropriate way to display them. Tell me about what you're currently doing, where you currently are in the business. Give me a snapshot of how much time you spend doing what. Up until COVID changed all our lives, I was working as a uh, director of photography. 99% of my time, I was still doing a little, a little bit of lighting design here and there, but very, very little. And uh, I was primarily working as a director of photography on sitcoms. And I'd been doing that almost exclusively, let's say, 15 years. You know, really, since just a few years into the turn of the century, that really became my bread and butter. And so that's pretty much what you had been doing since 2005-ish. Yeah, and even before. I mean, I did my first sitcom in 96, and uh, that was I did four seasons of a show. So that, did, that was four years' worth. There might have been a year or two of other stuff in between. I did another one. Certainly by maybe even all the way back to 2003, you know, it's been 90% uh, sitcoms. I still mixed in some kids' TV here and there. I have done a bit of single camera DPing along the way in those years as well, but that's certainly a much smaller piece of the pie. So how do those shows work? Like, who are you actually working for? Who produces them? Are these network shows? Are these produced by outside production companies and the, and the networks purchase them? This the sort of new TV landscape, it's kind of hard to understand for some of us how shows actually get made. Right. In some cases, there are still... Uh, Studios involved. Uh, when I did Kevin Can Wait, which was a two-season show, uh, the show aired on CBS. It was a co-production of Sony Television and CBS. They each owned 50% of the show. I just completed a Netflix show that, as far as I know, is wholly owned by Netflix. Uh, Though, as you know, you go through the end credits, there's certainly other production companies na named, but uh, it can be all over the place. I know, for example, there's uh, a show that I was hoping was going to be in New York and won't be that uh, is ABC and it's ho and again it's wholly ABC. But then there's you know Chuck Lorre who does a thousand shows for CBS, and I'm sure Chuck Lorre owns a very good chunk of his shows. The calls usually come from in terms of whom I'm really working for. That's also been all over the place. There were cases when I was I spent a bunch of years working out in L.A. doing a lot of shows for Disney. I was originally taken out there by a Disney VP of production who said to their producers, this is the guy that you want to use for this. So I, I basically got foisted off on these people, and fortunately it worked out, and then they would call me for more shows directly. In some cases, it's an executive producer who I would have worked for previously. Uh, in the case of the Netflix show and that show Kevin Can Wait, which was Kevin James, Kevin and I got along, so it became clear when he was doing another show that Kevin was going to be asking for me to do, the to do his second show too. So there's certainly not one size fits all. Going back to when you first started working in the business, can you tell me how you discovered lighting as a profession, how you first started working in lighting? Yeah, I was in high school and I didn't get cast in the plays, so I worked on lighting. <laughs> 
Um, but I also, well, I was an AV geek as well. So when I didn't get cast in the shows, I worked backstage and then I gravitated towards lighting. My graphic skills have always been pretty lousy, so that once I was at NYU as an undergrad, which should have never been an undergraduate program to begin with, it became abundantly clear very quickly that I wasn't going to be a scenic designer. So that, once again, uh, pushed me more and more into the world of lighting. How was the NYU program structured back then? They had a grad and an undergrad that were literally the same program. It was probably 80% grad students and 20% undergrads, and we all went to the same classes together. So there, there was truly no difference in the program whatsoever. And by the time I got out, I was firmly convinced that uh, I had been both uh, educationally and emotionally ill-equipped for the program, and the program probably should not have existed at all. I just don't think that an 18-year-old coming out of high school could possibly have had, you know, the background in art history and civilization and literature that you really needed to be able to take advantage of what they were offering. And then add to the fact of, again, when I say emotionally, my own uh, personality and travails at the time in the mid to late 70s uh, made me a less than ideal student. I got out in 79. That was when cable TV was just getting off of its baby legs and just starting to become something. And I, you know, I sort of took a look at the world around me and said to myself that I uh, wasn't going to make a living in theater and that this might be a place where there would be or I would have more opportunity. So how did you make that transition happen? While I was in school, I took a year off at one point, and I worked at a lighting shop in New York. Uh, that at the time was originally was called Tom Field Associates, became something called Production Control Associates. And I was a shop mutt, and uh, I would uh, go out and do spot dates for concerts and things like that, and we put together some rock and roll touring. While I was there... Uh, there was another guy working there at the time who came in shortly after I did, named Bob Lampel, who became a very close friend, who just passed away uh, the other day. Um, I went back to school. He went to work for Todd Rundgren up in Woodstock. And I had another, I guess I had one more year of school left. And uh, when I got out of school, he said, why don't you come up here? He was sort of working as Todd's production manager at the time. And was also lighting tours, and Todd had gotten into doing video. Uh, this is actually before MTV launched. Still, mm -hmm. I think MTV launched in '81, and this was back. Like I say this is in 1979. So I didn't really have anything going. So I was like, "Yeah, we'll, we'll go." You know, I'll be the one guy in history who moved to Woodstock for a job. <laughs> I went out on the road with Todd. I went on the road with a few other bands, and we put together a video studio. So were they just touring around with like the giant three-gun projectors? Uh, we did. <laughs> I was the proje also not only did I light, I was the projection guy as well. Oh, I see. And it was it was a big it was a GE fifty-fifty projector, three-gun projector, and I put together a mirrored reflex system to be able to do it RP. Wow. Uh, yeah, it, it was. I mean, it didn't look particularly good, but it uh, served the purpose. Uh, and then we were also doing music videos. Um, for Todd and for his band Utopia and a few other people that were out in front of MTV. But anyway, so that lasted a couple of years. I came back to New York. I swung a wrench for a while. I built some scenery. And I also started working in corporate television studios as a camera operator and lighting guy. So I did that for a while. Then I moved up a little bit and worked for a company called Amero Fiorentino Associates. Uh, oh, Amy, okay. Amy Fiorentino was one of the pioneers. Uh, of the of the industry, uh, he really created sort of the world of the freelance lighting designer for television. Prior to that, it was just, it was the guys who worked at the networks who did everything. It was just it was it was an engineering position from within the networks. Uh, and Immy had done that, and then he had the bright idea of starting a company. He did a lot of groundbreaking stuff, and by the time I was around, he had a stable of designers here in New York that included uh, Alan Edelman, Randy Nordstrom, Jim Tetlow, uh, Dave Clark, Carl Vitelli, and uh, 
I'm sure there's others I'm not remembering. They gave me a couple of small opportunities to work as a lighting director on a few concerts and things like that. And then I'd done a bunch of stuff for Jim Tetlow when he was there. And he had been a favorite uh, at Sesame Street. He hadn't done the show for a while, uh, but he had been somebody who they had liked a lot. And Fiorentino had done that show from the very beginning in 69. They were going into their 20th season and wanted to make some changes and improve the look and change things up. And they wanted to get rid of the guy who had been doing the show. And Jim was kind enough to say that he thought that uh, even though I didn't have really all that much experience at the time, that I might be a good fit. So he pretty much redesigned the rig for the 20th season. And then I went in and did the show on a day-to-day -day basis, which to us, we would do a lot of swing sets and we were doing a lot of uh, stuff that needed, you know, real work on a daily basis. It wasn't going in and just, you know, bringing up a cue and sitting back and reading the paper. You had to take a very active role. Well, any scene that involves Big Bird and Snuffleupagus at the same time. Yeah, and put like, you know, a four-year-old African-American kid behind him back in the <laughs> days when you were lighting at 160-foot candles and had the cameras couldn't handle any contrast. It was, uh, you know, it was a learning experience. So that was really when I guess I would say that I started to get going in a meaningful way. When, uh, you know, sort of the future started to feel somewhat assured. Uh, I mean, that wasn't until 88 when I, when I started on that show. Jesus, it's still 32 years ago. It's crazy. So I stayed there for about five years of doing literally every episode. And back then we did, we were shooting, we must have been shooting eight, nine months a year. We did all, we shot forever. They now shoot really very little. That was really the kind of the seminal education for me. That, that was where my chops went up by leaps and bounds over the, the years on that show. Learned a tremendous amount about using color, uh, about the ways you could create mood, and learned a lot of tricks about uh, puppets, which became a very big part of my career for a long time. I became kind of the New York puppet meister as a result and learned very quickly that uh, light wraps around on round surfaces. That was the biggest. You try and get an off-angle key light on a puppet, you got to go a long way around. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about Ernie's head or Bert's head. Yeah, I totally understand. There were a lot of weird things, you know, you know if the backlight was at all too high on Big Bird, we, we would get what we would call wacky beak, which is where the, you know, you'd get halfway down his beak, there'd be a shadow, and then the thing would be like just totally blooming the rest of the way around. And then, like you said, you put him next to Snuffleupagus and pick what you're going to expose for. You know, they're walking down the street. You can't light them really separately as two separate entities. And one is dark as pitch, and the other one is just, you know, fluorescing. I think I was the first one to start using flags on the show, actually, to start trying to flag off the bird, you know, or net off the bird to try and control levels some more. I know for a fact I was the first person to ever use a bounce light at Sesame Street. <laughs> the most that I learned would have been we would do blocks of days where we would do nothing but uh, Muppet inserts, which would be the kinds of things like the parodies and things like that, the stuff that was very often pitched past the kids and to the parents. I remember some of my favorite, we did parodies of the Seventh Seal. <laughs> uh, with Jim as a Viking counting seals as they went by. Uh, we did a... Uh, and no young person comprehended what that no, was. No, it no, was, it was absolutely... To a large extent, they were, just, they were to some extent meant for in case the parents were still watching with the kids. Um, but to a very larger extent, it was the writers amusing themselves, writing stuff that they liked um, that would still get the educational point across. Um, one of my favorite pieces of work that I ever did was we did a parody of Casablanca that we just ripped off the movie visually, hook, line, and sinker. And it, and it, it was spectacular. It was beautiful, you know, and obviously it was in black and white. Um, That's amazing. I pitched at one point, and it was an incredibly welcoming place to ideas. I pitched at one point. They had a very simple opening for the monster piece theater segments. So I think it was just a book or something like that. And I offered up and said, you know, this thing, we can do better than this. Why don't we do 
like, you know, a tabletop snorkel shot across all of the books and everything, just like in Masterpiece Theater. And they were like, oh, that's a great idea. So we, we did this beautiful opening with a snorkel that got, that got used for years. Now they don't even do those pieces anymore. They've gotten rid of all that. Anything that isn't straight to the kids is gone on that show. But yeah, in the monster piece theater things, we did Fiddler on the Roof. We did King and I. So I had to learn really to be able to take things up a notch, you know, in terms of using color and direction and, and lighting things dramatically. And then we, they would also throw in a lot of night scenes and things on the street, you know. So it, it just gave me huge, huge opportunities. And they were just so amazingly supportive of anything that you wanted to try. They were just totally game for it anything. It sounds like an amazing place to land at that point in your career. It absolutely was. It was awesome uh, for about five years. And then Barney hit big and the show changed radically. Uh, as a response to the popularity of Barney. And that was when I began to uh, do it less and hand a lot more to Mitchell and to other people because I had other opportunities and also because I just wasn't as invested in the show anymore because I, I just thought that the show was becoming very milk toast. So I got out of there and that actually coincided with my first sitcom, which was in 96. By the time I pretty much fully extricated myself out of there, I had been do I had started doing a lot of other stuff, and that was also the period. It was around eighty nine or ninety, I guess, probably eighty nine, when I partnered up with Steve Brill and we formed Burner and Brill. How'd you guys meet? Steve, well, we actually we had met. I did a stint in eighty four as a vacation relief LD at NBC, and Steve had been there for a while. Uh, at that point, he was doing. Uh, the huge Cosby show in the 80s, uh, he had taken that show over, and it was being done in-house uh, at NBC out at the Brooklyn Stages. But anyway, we met a bunch of times. And then maybe a year or so into Sesame Street, he actually phoned me. He was still doing Cosby. That was still going on. And he said, you know, with you doing that show and me doing Cosby, we've got sort of two of the more visible, bigger shows in New York that are ongoing. So, you know, we might be able to parlay that really into something bigger than just that. So we got together and we met and we got together with our wives and we all met and ate Italian food and decided it was a good idea. Uh, so we formed the company and it first just started as the two of us very shortly after that realized we needed somebody else. I got us the contract to do the VJ segments at MTV. So we suddenly needed somebody to be able to go to MTV every day of the week, five days a week. So I scouted around and I hired Dan Kelly, who was fresh out of uh, NYU. And he's actually still at LDG today. Now, how did that work, taking someone right out of college and putting them on a show like that? MTV was a, was a pretty much an entry-level kind of lighting job. It was very run and gun. They didn't care too, too much about what stuff looked like. So long as you could keep up was really it. So, you know, if the, if the key light wasn't really in the right place and the shadows were a little deep or this or that or the set didn't look that great, they really didn't much care. It, it was really crank out a product. Uh, and they did have a lot of volume to get through uh, every day. So, I, you know, I went in and I spent, I don't, can't remember, maybe I spent a week with them in there after I designed it and tweaked it out and sort of showed them how to put together cues for something like that, which was very largely just became handles on an expression at the time for all of the various different sets. And if, if the camera goes here, use this handle. If the camera goes there, use, you know, it was all, they were basically submaster shows. Got it. And he did a great job. He stayed in there for a long time. And then we started adding uh, the VH1 segments back when VH1 did that. And that was another person that we needed. And Steve was right. We started picking up more shows. And 
we would first use people like Mitchell Bogard and Ken Craig, and we would start them off uh, as freelance, just daily hires. And then we put them on staff. And then we started putting together freelance crews. We said, oh, instead of having the producer hire the crew, they would just assume not have to deal with it. So we would put together crews and we didn't own any gear, but we would provide the gear and just sub-rent stuff from uh, what was at the time Production Arts, the greatest lighting company in the history of the business, as far as I'm concerned. Thank you, John McGraw and Steve Terry. So it really turned into a business. My wife ran the place. She became the GM. We first got shared office space. Then we got our own offices. Then we hired my wife and an assistant, uh, you know, and it just grew. And the more it grew, the less happy I was. One of the things that I really remember was trying to get through the moment to moment of a show with one eye on a monitor, a headset on, and talking on the phone at the same time about business stuff. And I don't think the clients were that happy to see me distracted. I wasn't that happy. I think probably the work, the design work, probably suffered some. Um, one positive of it, it was that was where I learned how to use an assistant. I had never before, really before that, I had always done all my own drafting, all my own everything. And I learned how, okay, start a design out of a hookup rather than just sitting down at a blank sheet of paper where I really had to plan out a show and I would do a hookup and then I would just throw tick marks on a sheet of paper and hand it off to a draftsperson. So it helped me in that way. But um, I became less and less happy over time. I became more and more uncomfortable with, on the one hand, profiting off the labor of other people, or what I at the time called being a lighting design pimp, and sort of felt like even from the standpoint of sub-renting the gear, felt like, well, if the client were renting this themselves and could get the same rate, then I could have more toys to play with on the set. So the whole thing just started becoming less and less satisfying to me. And then finally, in I guess it was 97, I decided I'd had enough. And I told Steve, and he, he basically bought me out for my half of the book value of the company was. And uh, Lord love him, he's done a thousand times better without me than he probably would have done with me. He's really turned that company into a juggernaut that has really withstood the test of time. I do want to ask you one specific question about that. Just because most of my guests who have started a business have similar issues, have similar complaints. You know, they say that they spend more time doing business than doing the work that they were good at that mm -hmm. meant that they started a business. Did you consider maintaining ownership and just no longer, you know, trying to back away from, you know, give up some ownership and back away? I really did get to the point where I really did have a visceral problem with the idea of people making less money than they could just because I was the one hiring them when I could have said, oh, you should get this guy and they could make another 50 or 75 bucks a day if they were a daily hire. It really became a bit of an ethical problem for me. That was really it. I guess, you know, my father was a socialist retail jeweler. Go figure. Try and reconcile those two things. <laughs> um, so I just felt like I wanted to be responsible for myself. And when I needed to put a crew together, I would just tell the producer who I wanted. That was just me. I mean, more power to uh, who the guys who do it other ways. And yes, they are creating opportunities for other people to work. And that is important. There are people who are probably working that otherwise might not be working as much or, or doing stuff that's as good. But it just wasn't me. So I left and I made the decision that I was going to try to move more towards director of photography and out of lighting designer because I didn't like the lack of control I had on a set as a lighting designer uh, or the lack of input. What happened was, so I had a one-year overlap when I started, uh, again, it was my first sitcom. It was for CBS. It was another Cosby show. And that probably created probably some friction actually on the side that Steve couldn't have been happy that I got offered the show with the star that he had worked for for however many years that other show was on the air. So that was nothing that was overt, but, you know, that might have had some issues. But anyway, so I started on that show. The first season of that show, I was called the lighting designer. And it was the usual thing where I kept my head down and they designed the rig and lit the show. And I, you know, would design all the swing sets, uh, you know, showing where every light had to go and basically just did that. I really, I was just a lighting designer. 
At that point, many of those shows had transitioned over from videotape. This was a videotape show at the time. And shows were transitioning over to, back over to 35 millimeter. And people doing the same job on the West Coast that I had were being called directors of photography. So when we went to our second season, I went to the producer and I said, I want a DP credit. It was a little bit of a fake it till you make it situation. My role really didn't change at the time. But they gave me the credit because that's what everybody else was getting. And that's really what the union was calling for. I was a local 600 director of photography uh, on the show. Um, but I did, I sort of leveraged getting the title over the next few shows to getting more control that I wanted, where I was able to then say, these are the camera operators I want to have. This is the video control guy that I want to have along with being able to say, this is the gaffer I want, and this is the key grip I want. So I was able to extend it out and sort of become really the head of the camera department in that way. In those kinds of shows, you still didn't get much in the way of control in of how shots were framed, that there was a separate position that sort of came out of the world of broadcast TV of associate director, who was the person who would work with the director on camera blocking. So that was still a cause of frustration because I'd see shots I didn't like, very often relating to focal length. And I, th I thought a camera should back up to shoot the same shot, but on a tighter angle to change the background or move closer to see more background, things like that. And basically, the associate director, also called camera coordinator, would sort of say, yeah, thanks very much. And I'd go to the camera operator and say it. And even though I had been responsible for them getting the job, they'd be like, well, he's really the one I got to listen to. And they were right. So the next step up over the time was uh, then I started doing a few shows where I was able to put together those two positions. It didn't ha it hasn't happened often, but a few times I've actually been able to get the job as DP and camera coordinator on the show. To me, that's the greatest of all worlds. And the other thing that developed as I learned, I had a background in still photography, but as I learned more and more and more about camera technology and post-production and all of that, I also got to the point where I would start specking the camera packages and the lenses and then would get the video guy in. But I would work with the rental house to create the broad strokes of the camera package. And then what is now called the DIT, the video controller, would then go in and get in there in the nuts and bolts of it. But, but I'd say, this is the camera I want. These are the lenses I want. These are the pedestals I want, that kind of stuff. Got it. I would work through. And that, in the end, is you know sort of where I've landed and have gotten with more and more with age and with confidence where I even when there is an associate director, uh, I will assert myself more and say, no, you really need to do it this way. That helped a lot with working on the West Coast. That works better on the West Coast than it does back here, where it is more collaborative. What is this sort of continuum of job titles that runs from lighting designer to director of photography? And what specifically the additional responsibilities you take on as you move through that continuum? I mean, if we can take one further step back, as I'm sure you know, you know, okay, lighting designer will design a rig, get a show starter. Very often, a lighting director will come in behind them to deal with the day to day if it's a very formatted show, where the extent of the role maybe comes in a lot of things like talk shows, judge shows, news shows, all that kind of stuff, where it's, oh, you know, this person is paler than last guest, so I need to take the key light down a point. So that, those are sort of the lighting director role, as I, as I always saw it anyway. Lighting designer is when you got to get out there and, like I say, you know, do the initial design. And then if you're doing substantial changes on a day-to-day -day basis, then I would call that a lighting designer, even if they didn't do the initial rig. Usually if you're a lighting designer, you know, it's the producer has hired the video guy and you're sort of working in concert with them, but you don't have authority over them. Once you become a DP, you really do have the authority to say, no, do this, or shade this this way, or I don't want you touching an iris unless you talk to me first, where you can really mandate that stuff because the guy is working for you. And that's a very important piece. You know, when I, when I do put a show together, because 75, 80% of the stuff that I do is on stages uh, in studios, you know, I'll light the entire show to an F-stop. And my video guy knows that if he sees something and he doesn't feel is right, he'll give me a shout on a headset or a walkie and say, is this really what you want right here? And then it's up to me to say, uh, you know, no, crack it closed, crack it open. But basically the entire show, once you've chipped the cameras, it's a don't touch situation. 
And that, that's something that I feel very, very, very strongly about. So there's that control over the video guy. The, another step of in becoming a DP is where you're saying, these are the camera operators I want. Uh, again, as opposed to it being the producer who brings in their favorite people. Now, the director can certainly overrule you. Fortunately, in a lot of the cases, I work with shows with directors who come in from L.A., so they rely on me to be able to crew those positions, and often the producers too. Oh, and then the other thing that I left off that is actually a very big difference is that since the shows that I do aren't, generally speaking, 90% of the time live to air, once the show is edited, I then get involved with a colorist to do a final color pass on the show through DaVinci or Base Light Color Correct systems. Now, it's not stuff that you get paid for. I don't know anybody, at least in the multi-camera world, that uh, gets paid for their time for that, but it's an important step. And it's the one, for me, it's a hugely important part of my putting together a picture because there are certain things that because of the pressures of time that you may not have been able to get to on set that you might have done, or you may have had something as simple as a cast member so close to a wall that you weren't able to control the level of the wall separately from the cast member. And the little wall happened to be a light valued wall. So you can do things like you can go in, you can create a power window, you can knock down that wall, reduce the exposure on that. Uh, I do a lot of stuff like in close-ups, I'll have the colorist create very almost subliminal vignetting on close-ups and things so that the audience's eye goes directly to the actor. I'll do things in balancing skin tones with, you know, because I may have Snuffleupagus next to the bird. <laughs> I may have an African-American actor next to a very pale actor that, again, because of the nature of shooting multi-camera, you can't get in there necessarily and control it for that moment in the scene where they have to share the same light. So I pick who I'm going to expose for on set, knowing that I can go back and I can either bring one actor down or the other up when I get to the color correct. Well, a lighting designer never gets those opportunities. In some ways, that might be the most important difference where I can make a real contribution after the fact. As you stepped into these roles, then kind of what happened with your career? And, you know, how did that take you forward into, into doing sitcoms? Did it take me forward? The main thing is I stopped getting called for anything else. I have become since, oh, let's see. I did a, a two-season single-camera series that might have been around 2007, 2008, a couple other little single camera pilots. But I would say in the last 10 years, I haven't been called for anything except a sitcom. Or I could count certainly on one hand, which is problematic. But it simply is uh, the reality. I was forced for a number of years to start commuting out to Los Angeles in order to be able to keep working. You know, I had, again, if I take it backwards into the Burner and Brill years and the few years right after that, yeah, I was still doing talk showy kinds of stuff and live event work. I did work for, I did actually a lot of work for a bunch of years in corporate theater stuff, you know, doing ballroom and arena shows uh, for corporations. And I don't know if that business has fallen by the wayside to some extent, or if I just stopped getting uh, those calls. So now this is the world I live in, riding this dinosaur form that oddly won't lay down and die. There's probably more going on now than there was for a whole bunch of years. Uh, I got a lot of my buddies uh, out west are working really hard, and there were some fallow years in between. You know, as much as the format is derided as being archaic, there's still a lot of them made, and it's still a very profitable uh, format. So if we could discuss one of your shows from start to finish, uh, this this new project of yours, The Crew, okay. that it just got a drop date, right? Yeah, February 15th. Uh, the entire season will be dropped. Uh, it's about a NASCAR pit crew. Uh, <laughs> when did you get called during the process? And then what steps did you take from there until you actually ended up on the first shoot? I was in L.A., I don't remember how I got news of the show, if it was in the trades or if somebody called me to tell me that they heard about it. Anyway, the crew is a, it's an ensemble comedy, but it's starring Kevin James, who I had done this show called Kevin Can Wait for CBS with a few years before. 
and Kevin and I had gotten along really well. It was going to be the same director who, and we had, on both those shows, we had what's called a house director. One guy did every episode, and he and I had had a very good relationship. And I had a good enough relationship with the UPM. Uh, So I knew that this was essentially mine to lose. So I got on the phone, and it was basically, and this is probably four months, maybe even five, before the show went into real pre-production. And I was basically told that the job would be mine, but they weren't in a position yet to hire me and that I'd have to get approved by Netflix and, you know, blah, blah, Um, but not to be too concerned. Then we hit a huge roadblock when I had, at that point, I'd been working out in L.A. Despite living in New York, I was working in L.A. for a bunch of years, and I had had to move my union membership to... It's the same local, but Local 600 of the IA, the International Cinematographers Guild, is broken into several different regions through the country. And you can only work as a local in one region. And you actually have to be a resident in that region. So I had actually established residency in California, and I had moved my membership out there because the people I was working for out there weren't about to pay me as a distant hire to pay me six and a half days a week and per diem and living, you know, in an apartment and a car and all of that stuff. You know, I had to work for just a straight up rate. And there isn't a lot of negotiation that goes on in these shows. The rate is pretty much the rate as established by the unions. At least I don't know anybody. I actually negotiated a little bit over scale when I was at Disney, but nothing to speak of. Uh, And I don't know anyone else who's managed to anywhere. But anyway, so that became a huge stumbling block because the show was going to be in New York, which is why I wanted to do the show. I wanted to move back home for real. And it became a big issue uh, because they also didn't want to pay all of the freight that went along with bringing me in as distant hire. Now, I was willing to move my membership back, but you can only move your membership once every 18 months under the constitution and bylaws of my union. And I had been in the West for 15 months, so it's three months short of where I needed to be when the show was going to actually hit the studio to start loading in. Now, I am pretty much the only guy in New York that does these shows. Uh, While I didn't TP it, I had even put together uh, and consulted on Murphy Brown when it was here a few years ago because the TP that they hired because they weren't permitted to hire me, a different story. The producer brought me in to consult, to show this other guy how to do these shows and to put together the camera package. And I hired the operators and I hired the video guys and consulted on a lot of aspects of the show because the producer had also never worked in New York before. But anyway, so I'm really kind of the guy in New York, just because there aren't that many of these shows. So there hasn't been the need for a lot of people to develop these skills. So this became this huge stumbling block. So I I wrote the union and I said, look, they want me to do the show. I'm only three months short. You and I both know that there's nobody else in town that can really do this show. Uh, So, you know, it behooves us as a union to be able to say we have the qualified people. And the Eastern region director would not budge. And he said, look, sorry, if they really want you, they'll pay you the distant hire. Otherwise, you're out of luck. He said, if you don't like it, go to the uh, president of the union and see what he says, which I did. And the president of the union, who actually was also a New Yorker, agreed with me. And uh, when I called the Eastern region director back and told him, he said, yeah, well, it's not his decision. It's my decision. And I say, no. So the whole thing looked like it was going to go south. Uh, And I was furious with my union. And it got even relatively ugly between me and the producer because I said, you know, there's nobody else. You're really kind of stuck. And she said, well, no, I'll just hire your crew and I'll get a different TP. So I was, oh, well, thank you for taking all the people that I've provided you with in the past. But anyway, whether it was her coming to her senses or the director or Kevin. I don't know. It finally, it worked out. And yes, finally, they, they gave me the job. I came back to New York. So I ultimately, I got hired probably two months before we started on stage. And for the bulk of that two months, nothing happened. I just knew I had the job. Maybe a month or so before we started on stage, I got serious about uh, talking about 
camera packages and what our, the, the technical requirements were from Netflix and what we needed to get in order to satisfy that. So I started putting together camera package lists and getting them out to various rental houses and let my guys know between I got my gaffer, my key grip on board, my camera operators on board, my digital imaging tech on board, lined up some camera assistants, you know, got all that. And finally, maybe a month before we started was when I started getting drawings from the production designer who I'd worked with before. And basically, he sends me everything. I get elevations, I get ground plans, I get sketches, I get the entire package, which is where the theater training becomes so valuable because you can actually read a drawing. What formats do these things come in? Yeah, it's all Vectorworks. Actually, is that true? I think for some reason, they would send me PDFs that I would then throw into Vectorworks. I would just get make them to scale in Vectorworks mm-hmm. uh, and then to start blocking out in white all of the extraneous stuff. And again, I went back to my old roots where I didn't use I don't use draftsmen or anything like that. I just I do the show soup to nuts. Just it's just my process. So that was probably about a month before so I started laying out the show on paper and and with absolutely no guidance from producers or Kevin or directors. Nobody's saying, you know, we want it to look like this. We want it to look like that. They're just, we trust you do your thing. And we really liked the last show. Um, A vast bulk of the show took place in what for a TV set was a huge pit car garage set which are very high-tech environments. They sent me a bunch of research. And these places don't look like where you take your car to get fixed. They're, they're almost like clean rooms. And it was a very high-tech looking set, very beautiful set uh, designed by a guy named Wendell Johnson. But I thought in my head, okay, I looked at all the research and I thought, okay, so this should be a very up environment, you know, if I'm going to hold true to the realities of these spaces, which is generally not the way I like uh, I like with a fair amount of modeling and character and dropping off backgrounds and things like that. Uh, but I didn't think that was going to be right for what this show was. And we also had a like a bar set. So I figured, okay, that's where I'll be able to create a huge contrast between this bar that they hang out in and this kind of clean room environment. And that'll be kind of cool to be going back and forth from these two things. Uh, and that's also where I'll satisfy my Jones by doing the bar and making the other one be just what it should be. So I lit the space as this big, bright environment, thinking that that was the right way to go, having had no direction. And we were shooting uh, the first episode that we were shooting, which was not the first episode that aired. And I think we got through the first day of the two days, and I got called into Kevin's office. And uh, he said, I'm not happy with the way the garage was. I said, oh, okay, well, what's the matter? Let me see what I can do. He says, and Kevin can wait. The backgrounds got dark, and there were things that were bright, things that were dark, and we were all very modeled in the set. And I'm not getting any of that here. And I said, oh, okay. I said, that actually was a real conscious choice that I made. Yeah, based on all the research you sent me. Right, yeah. But if that's not what you want, okay, let's get that addressed. I said, to finish this week, in terms of the way the set is lit in the background, there's not a tremendous amount I can do, but I can certainly put the modeling back in on all of you guys in it. And then for next week, let me get your other concerns addressed. So... We finished out that week. I, actually, we took two weeks off after we shot the first show in order because I knew that there would be notes, both in physical production and potentially in writing stuff. So we actually had a little more time. But um, what we wound up doing was I did get in. I flagged down a lot of the walls, and then I, we had to go back. And there was a lot of signage in the set and all sponsorship stuff that was peppered throughout all throughout all the walls and things like racing suits on the walls. There's a ton of set dressing on the walls. So I flagged down the walls and then wrapping around the set in a lot of places, there was a second level. So the deck overhung and then we wound up mounting Source 4 mini ellipses all over the place and tried to pass them off as being architectural. And I just started lighting all of these individual elements so that there would be little pings of stuff that was lit up, but that I could bring the rest of it down to satisfy. And it solved the problem, but it was, uh, I hadn't really been in that sort of a position before of having to make what I would call a real substantial change after shooting. And then actually in the color correct, having to go back to that first episode and try and tweak pictures 
so that the first one that we did would wind up looking like all of the ones after we made the changes. It's an interesting situation where, you know, you go in, they don't give you, you know, much in the way of guidance of what they want, and you take your best shot. But, uh, ooh, suddenly I didn't deliver what the client wanted. You know, I may have thought that it was a right approach, but it's their football. So you got to stay flexible enough to uh, be able to adapt to that stuff. And it's tough, but then being able to say to the money people, look, I need this stuff because this is what the boss It's what the guy whose name is above the title, this is what he wants, and this is the only way I can do it. So so it can be a tough situation. Man, that's a cautionary tale that somebody with the amount of experience you have can still get bushwhacked. I was very taken aback, and it's tough to sort of smile and go, oh, okay, I get it, and I will address the problem. So normally, how does this work, and how did the rest of the crew work? So I put together designs, I send them off to my gaffer, who does, uh, I now no longer deal with lighting rental houses at all. Uh, As again, as opposed to being an an LD, where I might have put out equipment lists to get a show bid by, whether for a PRG, whoever. These days, I don't do that at all. It's a great luxury where I just crank out a drawing. I will crank out Lightrite, which makes me very different from a lot of DPs. Most DPs don't I will do a channel hookup, which is also on the West Coast is basically unheard of, uh, which I've never understood. Um, but these are the shows out West. The crew plugs it into whatever is closest. And that's what number the light is. Yeah. And you hang it. You hang a tag on it. And God help you. If you can't memorize it, every time you want to know what a light is, you wind up walking out to the set. It's a funny thing. The gaffer I used in L.A., who became a pretty good friend, Brian McKinnon, and he would make fun of the New Yorkers because he would say, you guys, you go into the shop and you label everything. He says, I go into stuff and, you know, there'll be an 18-inch DMX jumper that's labeled with where it has to go. He's like, that's bullshit. We get a lot of stuff and we just go and we make it work when we get there. So who's to say? But anyway, um, so I send out the, the plot and a hookup to my gaffer. And from there on, he bids it. I also, I send it out to the key grip. He'll put together a grip package. And I, you know, it's like anybody, everybody else you talk to. We have our guys, so they know what we expect and they know what we like. So they, you know, my key grip, I don't have to say how many flags I want. He knows that I'm going to put minimum one and potentially up to three flags on every hard light that's in the set. Because the hard lights, by the time you finish putting a pile of diffusion on them, aren't hard anymore. And a barn door is nothing but a dousing shutter. We struggle. We make a few changes. And we were forced to use a single vendor. Lots of these stages have vendors that they are lot vendors, basically. So you yeah. can't say, I'm going to put it out to two or three places and get the best quote. So I think we came in lighting-wise. We were at like 35, 40 grand a week. It's like real money. Grip is cheap. That doesn't amount to much. The first week of the load-in, I basically don't show up. I leave the key grip and the gaffer alone to get the show hung. In this world, the set goes in first, or at least the set starts first. You don't pre-hang a show in this realm. It's very where you could go in and hang a show in a couple of days. Suddenly it takes a week because you're working around walls and things. On the other hand, the lights get really in the right place the first time. So you could sort of argue it either way. You're not saying, shit, that wall went in six inches away from where it was drawn. And now the light's behind the wall instead of in front. But so they spend the first week of a load-in. Our load-ins are typically three to four weeks, depending on if it's a four-wall stage or if there's any infrastructure. If the grips have to hang a grid, which is typically the case, they'll start several days before electrics. Electrics will follow them and start doing dimmers and power and stuff like that. And then eventually, a week later, they'll hit the, they'll actually hit the stage. And typically, we'll get three weeks on stage. So the first week, they'll get the thing hung. The second week eh, is really still more hang because the sets will be behind. And you're struggling to share the sets with carpenters and scenics and set dressers. Uh, it's, let me say, it's a little bit of a... Uh, different way of doing things from what uh, we all learned in school. So the second week I'd go, but that really becomes much more about meetings, production meetings, and a lot of sitting around and answering some questions. I'm really still not much on the set that much. Maybe the camera package has started to come in and there's always stuff to deal with on that for me. 
It's the last week is when I start to really get involved in the lighting. And it's usually a three to a four day focus for me on a typical sitcom that fills a 15,000 square foot stage, however many sets they can cram in and whether there's an audience or not. And not all those shows have audiences anymore. But uh, so it'll take me a few days to focus and, you know, sort of I go in with the electrics and we rough in the set. But the, fi the fine tuning is really has really all become a grip thing at this point. You know, I'll make sure that I've got the levels I want to get out of the lighting. But then in terms of getting the levels balanced across the set and getting control over the walls and all of that kind of stuff, that's all grip. So the, the light is really tilted up a little, pan it over this way, box the doors, fine, let's move on. You know, uh, the, the focus is actually very fast. So we finish out our third week doing that. And the, so the grips will follow the electrics into each set as they go, and I'll be ahead, and then the grips will call me over to... I'll tell the key grip what I want cut, how, how I feel something needs to be netted or flagged to balance across lights so that the exposure remains constant over the full area that it covers, which is much like theater. An area covers about an eight by eight area, roughly, at least theater when I remember doing theater. And obviously, so in side light, you have to balance the near shot to the far shot, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't get overexposed when you're closer to the light. And that's where flags and nets and Bob and Ed come into play. Then the first production week always starts with a production meeting. You're basically at that point, the cast will be on set for about half a day and you get your time in the afternoon and the evening. And at that stage, in a perfect world, you're really done with what we call the permanent sets, the stuff that just stays up. The goal is always by the end of the last production week, you want that stuff done. So you can be worrying about that first week show and what the um, the swing sets, sets that are only going up for that particular episode, are going to be in any other specific uh, requirements that that episode may have. So the Monday, the cast will rehearse in the morning. You go in in the afternoon. That's usually when, uh, if you have swing sets, the crew will hang that set. I used to be very finicky about plotting every light. These days, because I've worked with these guys for so long, I'm a lot looser. My guys in LA, I really would... Brian was so good and a real lighting director on his own who'd done soaps. I would go, okay, you know, we need two rows of two across. And he'd go, yeah, yeah, I've already done. If I did a drawing, he'd pull his out before I got mine out. So they'll hang that uh, on a Monday. Now I'm working on the theory that this is a show that shoots Thursday, Friday. There's a whole other formula where shows shoot Monday, Tuesday. You only shoot two days a week. So they rehearse Monday. You get lights up in the air, assuming that the set is far enough along on Monday. Tuesday, they come in, they rehearse in the morning. Then they typically do a run-through for the writer-producers. Then you get the stage, and that's when we would go in. Based on the blocking that I would see in rehearsal, then I would focus the sets, and the grips would cut the sets. Um, Wednesday, they would rehearse again in the morning. Wednesday afternoon, there would be a run-through for the network executives, that depending on where they are, that might be with one camera being sent out to the West Coast and also be having local network executives there for them to all give notes on the writing. Uh, and then based on the blocking that I see at that point, then I'll make any adaptations in the permanent sets and uh, also really light the swing sets, knowing that Thursday is the day that I got to be ready and I'm not really going to get much of a chance to tweak. Anything that I really am going to have to do, I really going to have to be able to do 99% with levels because if talent is on set, I'm not. And you don't really have a ton of automated stuff. No, no. Certainly not in terms of movers. This show, I did use a lot of LED. To some extent, by virtue of the size of the sets, it became, when I say this, uh, this garage set was about 25 feet tall. Part of it was the actual stage walls. But on that, I actually wanted to be able to use mostly fixtures that if they wanted to really go hugely wide, that they could actually shoot and that could pass as architectural fixtures. So I did a tremendous amount of lighting in that set using Space Forces because they were sort of cool enough looking that you could imagine them being in that environment. And then I kept all of my cross light stuff way out at the sides where I figured I could get it, not make lens. 
And then as you get closer into the foreground, then you can start dropping stuff in lower to use stuff that can't make the huge throws. Um, so that set was lit. Uh, really, 99% of that set was Space Forces and Ari S60s. There was hardly any lensed light in that set at all. And then in some places where it was further downstage, I was using some uh, Kino celebs in places where, uh, where if I couldn't quite reach all the way across the set with a single S60 100 miles away. Why was it so important to stay away from Fresnel's and other lensed lights on the show? Particularly in the garage set. There were a lot of cars always in that set. And between windshields and these were not dirty cars because <laughs> it's, you know, NASCAR and everything's perfect. Were they real cars? Yeah. So we got real cars on the set and they're highly reflective between the sheet metal, the highly polished sheet metal, especially in the dark colors and the windshields that are, you know, obviously tipped up towards the grid. I knew that more likely than not, I was going to have reflections all over the place. And I figured that given the nature of multi-camera, I wasn't going to be able to flag all those reflections out successfully. And there would be times when I wouldn't be able to necessarily turn off the offending fixture because it might be lighting something that really needed to be lit. So I really made the effort to use stuff that if we caught a reflection that you might go, oh, okay, well, that kind of belongs in the space. But I figured grip arms and flags and Fresnels and barn doors and all of that kind of stuff was going to be a horrible giveaway that we were making a TV show. That, yeah, I, I get that. And, and I feel like that really underlines one of the differences between multi-camera and single camera. That, you know, there's ways you can solve problems with single camera that you, that you just can't on multi-camera. Like you said, you can't, you can't just turn a light off because it, it'll ruin the shot for another camera. Right. You can't easily get in there and move the light three feet. They're very different beasts. Uh, you know, another good way to get fired in multi-camera is to have fixtures on the floor, have stands that are getting in the camera's way. So everything is above you know, in single, you can put a key light or a fill light or, you know, get in there with a, a 6x6, an 8x8, a 12x12 soft diffuse source. You just can't do that kind of stuff because you got four cameras out there rolling around. You've got two perambulators with uh, booms on them for audio. The real estate just becomes very, very precious. So, yeah, it's really it's an overhead rig, which is not always uh, the best way to make something look good. Anything that you do to light at the top of the set has to come in from pretty much upstage of however far the boom is going to reach to avoid boom shadows. So you do see a lot of flagging, you know, uh, off walls actually consciously trying to remove light. Now, I will try and always get in there and throw some pingy stuff in in spots so it doesn't look like it's an ignored area. I lit the show, I was keying at about 24 foot candles for about an F4, four and a third maybe. <laughs> I can't help comparing that with, you know, earlier when you mentioned shooting at 160 yeah, foot candles. Yeah, it was in, in 1988, we were, I, I was 125. The agreement with the video operator was we would do the show at 125 foot candles. And when I say the difference in where my career has gone, I don't know what a stop that was. It was probably around a four-ish, but I don't even know because I was not, even though I had a background in still photography, I just wasn't putting things together. I was a lighting guy. So we, you do the Wednesday, you get everything ready as close as you think you can possibly get. Uh, Thursday, Thursday in the old days used to be a just a camera rehearsal day to get ready for an audience show. Spend like you might pre-shoot one scene, but the bulk of the day was all spent just rehearsing and camera blocking. Because it's first day you've got cameras. You also not only don't you shoot the other days, you don't have cameras. So you do a, a pass of a scene, fortunately, with a second team with stand-ins who've been there all week. So you usually can get though the stand-ins never look like the first team, like the real, the, what we call the realies, but you do get a chance to see it under your light and, you know, you might get a couple of minutes to go in if you need to tweak something. Then the first team comes out and like I said, you really do your damnedest to be heard and not seen by providing laughter offset. So you're shooting all day on a Thursday now. You're putting, you're recording all day. Basically, they try and get the whole show in the can. Uh, on Thursday. With no audience. With no audience. So they want people laughing in the room to try and keep the cast as up as possible so that stuff will actually cut if they need to use it with the energy of the live performance. Because it does actually change quite a bit. 
All right. So you shoot your Thursday and you do like an 11, 12 hour day shooting that way. You go home, you come in the next day, a little later in the day, you come in mid morning and might re-rehearse a couple of things. Uh, certainly in the old days, you would do a complete, what we would call a refresh. You'd go through the entire show in theoretically real, real time. You'd get a dress rehearsal and that doesn't happen so much anymore. And you might even reshoot something from the day before. Then you get a really long lunch break because you'll break it around 2. You'll go in at 10. You'll work from 11 to 2. You'll break at 2. And then you'll be set for the audience show. If you had any notes left over, you do your notes after lunch. But you usually wind up with a two and a half hour or so lunch. Audience will load in at usually 6. You do your show at 7. And you are hopefully out the door by... 9.30, 10 p.m. If the taping takes much more than two and a half hours, you're going to have a very cranky uh, number one on the call sheet. They want, to, they want to get through it fast, again, for the sake of audience reaction, of not burning the audience out. Uh, because you are doing every scene two, three times. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, uh, we say it's like shooting a play. Uh, it's not like shooting a play as far as the audience is concerned. It's like, right. it's like shooting a play in that we shoot scenes the majority of the time, we're shooting scenes top to bottom. We might need to call a hiccup or a stop to repo for a different camera orientation. But even that is frowned upon. They want to get through for the sake of, again, audience and cast energy. They want to shoot a scene all the way through. I had a producer in L.A. who was very old school, but a great producer who I became very fond of and respect tremendously, who would say, this is a sitcom. If you need a fourth wall, you're shooting it wrong or you're blocking it wrong. He would go up in arms when a director would say, either I need a wall extension because I have to get a camera inside the set or I have to, you know, need a fourth wall because I need to get a reverse angle from inside the set. And he would go bonkers and just say, that's not what this form is. Well, the reality is that is part of what this form is now, where people do expect, directors do expect to be able to do that, to be able to get special setups and things. And we do go outside on location now, which they never used to do, which will often eat up a big part of a Thursday. You can easily spend half a day on location. On Kevin Can Wait, we were outside almost every week. And it, in that case, it actually hurt the rest of the show because we were never adequately prepared to do a show on Friday because we'd spent so much time outside doing gags and stunts or things that had to be exterior for one reason or another. You mentioned the on-location stuff. So like on that show, how often did you have on-location stuff? How often did you have swing sets? And then how did you put all of the stuff involving the green screen shots with NASCAR in the background, you know, the stuff in the pits themselves into the show? Actually, this show pretty much stayed inside. Kevin learned his lesson on Kevin Can Wait. So we were, the things we did, okay, we had our main stage. There was a big space that we used next to our stage that was where video control was, audio, props, set deck, where it was basically, our stage was a converted uh, construction facility at, at Grumman Aerospace. So we had this whole other you know, unfinished area right next to the stage. And and there were times when we needed more of a raw space look for various scenes, and it had the loading door. So we had scenes that would take place in and around the loading door. So we found ourselves going into that raw space and opening the loading door and shooting inside, outside as well. So we had to light that a number of times uh, for different things. Then there were times, uh, a few times we went outside to shoot uh, from the outside of the loading door and dressing the side of the building as the outside of the garage. And then when we came back after COVID, we did one full day of exteriors, maybe it was two, uh, running our tails off. We did a whole bunch of night scenes, car night scenes, and some night scenes outside the garage and a couple of day exteriors. And we dressed the front of the stage as a police station. But by and large, it was not all that much. And what we would do is anytime we went out, we would scout it the week before, sort of rough block it in our minds of what we were going to do. And then I would talk to my gaffer, Tiger McMullen, and my key grip, uh, Dave Bowers, 
and say, okay, I think this is what we're going to need. And so the, and they would have to put together a package just for those shooting days. So we didn't keep anything for that stuff. And having a shop that was essentially on the lot, you know, made that easier because they could get us stuff quickly because we were out in the middle of Long Island. We were in Bethpage, Long Island. And then we were supposed to go do a week of shooting on location to block shoot scenes that would get dropped into every episode of the show at a racetrack in Virginia. COVID came, we shut down, we owed all of those scenes. And then when we came back in September to finish, we had three full episodes in these exteriors that we had to finish, a month's worth of shooting. Um, they, for safety reasons, they decided that they did not want us going on location. And so it became the quandary of, well, there was, we have all of these story-driven scenes that uh, need to get shot. NASCAR was a producer on the show. Uh, part of it is theirs, I think. Uh, so they worked out that they had uh, NASCAR shooting crews shoot us lots of footage of uh, the tracks from, you know, we told them what we were shooting. The way I've never been to a NASCAR race, but they have these things called pit boxes that are set up in the middle of the track that are like where all of the teams work from. And they're all lined up side by side. And I guess they're part of in the pit stop area. So they shot a lot of stuff from the perspective of looking at that, knowing that most of our scenes were taking place at our pit box. Either there's a seating area and a pit box on the second level and then areas out front uh, where they work on the cars. And we knew that most of our scenes were going to be either in front of the pit box, behind the pit box, or upstairs in the pit box. So they shot a ton of footage and we scheduled uh, two days of shooting on green screen and we set up our pit box and set up two others as background to help cover in cross shots so we weren't just shooting straight into the green so there'd be something to break up and hide sins. I had asked the executive producer and the director that it would be great if they would uh, pick their backgrounds for all of these shots so that we could really make a decent attempt at uh, lining up our foregrounds that we were shooting with the backgrounds to make them look right. You want to get the lens height the same. You want to ideally get the focal lengths you're shooting at the same so that the depth of field and the size of backgrounds makes sense with the size of the foregrounds and the perspective looks right. They had a tremendous amount of work to do because they were still cutting all the previous episodes uh, as well. And they said, yeah, we understand that would be great for us to be able to do, but it's not going to happen. So do your best. So we did our best, and uh, I've color corrected or color graded, call it what you will, everything in the show, in every episode, except for those scenes that I've only seen 10 footage of. So uh, it's going to take some measure of bravery to turn <laughs> the show on and look at them when the time comes. Everything else I have total confidence in. That stuff. There's, there's no, to me, there's like n nothing worse than a badly matched backplate with foreground. And I've, I've had to do them on a zillion shows through my career. And I would say there are more times when I've had to do it without knowing what the background wow. is going to be than knowing it is the nature of the quality of shows I do. You know, if it were, chances are, if it were a feature, you know, if I were doing features, I assume on a serious feature, that would not be an issue if that doesn't happen. But what do I know? I could be wrong about that, too. And we're going to leave it there for now. Come back next time for more with our guest, Bill Berner. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think. And you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light. We tweet at Podcasting Light. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by the Lane Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show.